So let's begin Parsha's Bereshis. A few quick facts about the Parsha. This Parsha contains 146 verses spread out over five plus chapters. There's only one mitzvah in the entire Parsha. In fact, there's only three mitzvahs in the whole book of Genesis. And I think definitely uh, anyone who studies this Parsha knows that this is probably the most difficult Torah portion uh, of all 54 of them. Uh, the Ramban, for example, he gives an introduction to the Torah and he writes that there's different ways to understand it, there's different levels, there's different dimensions of understanding all parts of Torah. There's a simple understanding and it gets more and more deeper and more and more esoteric and more and more what he calls sod, which means secretive. Uh, whereas in the Bracious, in this Parsha, there's almost nothing besides for the hidden aspects, uh, especially with respect to the first chapter, the first verses which describe creation. You have 31 verses or 34 verses, depends on, you ca- on how you count, uh, that seek to tell the story of how God created the world. Uh, and there's mountains of commentary. All the commentators give tons of explanation of what's going on. And in fact, in the Talmud, the Talmud explains that all this is is all esoterica. This is all Kabbalah. This is arcane subject matter that's not understood without direct, specific guidance. Uh, in fact, the Gona Vilna uh, said that we could actually deduce from the very first word of the Torah, the word Bereshis, those six letters, we could deduce all 613 mitzvos. So obviously there's a lot baked into it. My grandfather, blessed memory, he was the pedagogical advisor to several schools, and he actually thought that if you're teaching children, young children, the Torah, it's best to actually start with the third parsha, parsha's lech lecha, and to skip the very difficult and hard to understand portions at the beginning of the Torah. Of course, in the Parsha podcast, we will not be skipping anything, uh, but it's important just as a before we begin to realize that this is very difficult subject matter. It's not so clear. It's not evident from the uh, initial study of the Parsha what exactly is going on, but we'll try to do as best we can. Now, the Mishnah in the chapters of the Fathers in Perker Avos chapter 5 tells us, points out something very intriguing. It points out that if you count the amount of utterances that there are in the Genesis narrative, the narrative of creation, you'll come up with 10 times it says that God said, let's create this, let's create that, and so on. And the Mishnah points out that really, God didn't need to say 10 utterances. God could have said only one. With one statement, with one revelation of his will, it would be sufficient for God to create the whole world. You know, we have a hard time understanding how you could condense the entire creation of the whole universe, the whole world, of everything, of all the trillion species on our planet. To condense that into 31 verses is difficult, but the Mishnah says that really it could have been condensed into one verse. And the verse would say, and God said, let there be a world with everything that's in it, and that would indeed be sufficient. So why did God choose instead to create the world in this way seven days or six plus one, uh, with all these utterances, says the Mishnah. Why? It's because if wicked people, if they sin, well, then they tried to corrupt a world that was created with 10 utterances. Whereas if righteous people, they do mitzvos, they abide by the will of God, well, then they upheld a world that was created with 10 utterances. 
what it's telling us is that the creation narrative is actually there for our benefit to understand that God, so to speak, the God who created everything, is so invested in our world, he took the time to go through the details, the minutiae, so to speak, of adding all these other utterances, all these other revelations of his will to make his involvement in the world more pronounced. He could have said, oh, we're just creating the world, one utterance and we're done. But no, he chose to say, let's create this, let's create that, and kind of going through the various realms of creation to show to us that he is involved in our world. It's one of the perspectives that's hard for people to grapple with, you know, the idea that the same God that created the cosmos and all of time and space and the laws of physics and the whole universe is involved and cares about the lives of people, small people like you and me, like like just humans, the lowly humans. And here we see the answer. Yes, God is saying, I'm going to create the world with 10 utterances specifically to show you that I care I am involved. Now, Rashi, in his very first comment on the book of Genesis and the Torah, he asks another fundamental question. He says, well, the word Torah means instruction. It's instructive. And if you collect all the instructions in the Torah, you have 613 what we call mitzvot, commandments, that God gives us instructions of how we're supposed to behave, what we're supposed to do, and what we're supposed to not do. Well, says Rashi, if so, if that's the objective of Torah, why do we have this whole narrative, the creation narrative, but really the whole book of Genesis, which, like we mentioned earlier, contains only three mitzvot? Let's just start with chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, when the Jewish people are about to leave Egypt and be liberated from their exile, and they get all the mitzvot surrounding what they need to do upon their exit of Egypt. That's a more fitting place to begin the Torah with, because that's where we start getting the mitzvot, the commandments of the Torah in Mas. So why do we start over here? That's his question. And the answer is because in the future, the Jewish people are going to come and they say, we have the land of Israel, and it's ours. And all the other people are going to say, no, it's not yours. You stole it. It's really ours. And then, says Rashi, we're going to go to Genesis, and we're going to go to the creation narrative. And we're going to show the people who question our claim to the land of Israel, we're going to show, hey, look, read Genesis. It says that God created the world. And if you read continually throughout Genesis, in many times, God says, you know what? I'm going to give the land of Israel to Abraham and his descendants and to Isaac and to Jacob, to the Jewish people. And therefore, in order to substantiate the Jewish people's claim on the land of Israel, Therefore, we have everything in the Torah, all the stories, all the narratives of the Torah that are not related to mitzvot. It's all to bolster and buttress our claim to the land of Israel. And this is interesting because if you look at the end of the Torah, the last portion of the Torah that we read uh, a couple of days ago uh, on Simchas Torah, the very last thing that it tells us in the Torah uh, before the death of Moshe, which is the last several verses it tells about the death and the eulogy of Moshe, it gives us almost like a geological sketch of the land of Israel. It says that God tells Moses, go up on the mountain, view, gaze upon the whole land of Israel, and it goes through the various dimensions of the land of Israel. 
So it's almost as if, according to Rashi here, uh, the entire Torah from the beginning to end is this one deed almost there. We start off, we say, okay, the land of Israel belongs to us because God created the world. And the ultimate goal of this whole story that's rumbling throughout the Torah, we meet Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people eventually, they go to Egypt, they spend a long time in Egypt, but all that is trying to get back to the land of Israel to conquer it and to dwell in it and to fulfill the God's objective. That's what we see here. And perhaps we could uh, suggest that, in, in essence, the idea of the land of Israel, the idea of a holy land, is the essence of, of Torah. You know, land, after all, there's land. I live in Houston, Texas, and there's land. This whole country is, is uh, America is huge, tons of land. So what's so special about the land of Israel? Why is that so central? And according to Jewish philosophy, the answer is because the land of Israel is holy, it's special, it's not mundane, it's not like all the other lands, it's not like Houston, Texas, or uh, Des Moines, uh, it, it's different, there's something unique there, there's, it's almost like a, a replica of heaven, there's heaven, which is holy, and then there's the earth, which is mundane, which is regular, which is not holy, but the land of Israel, even though it's here, it's on earth, it's almost like a replica of heaven. And I would argue that that's, in essence, the goal of Torah, to create the conditions of heaven over here. And thus, I would say it's fitting that at the beginning of the Torah, according to Rashi, and certainly at the end of the Torah, we see that there's this this drive, this focus on the land of Israel. So we begin with the Torah, and God says, the first instruction, day one, the first commandment, the first utterance is, let there be light. And it's interesting, the commentaries point out that on day four, on Wednesday, there is the creation of the celestial beings, of the sun, of the moon, of the stars, etc. Yet we have light on day one. In our world, light has to originate in a source. We have light from the sun. Uh, If there was no sun, well, we wouldn't have any light. If there was no light bulb, if there's no flashlight, there's no source, there's no origin of the light, there is no light. Well, here we have light that doesn't seem to have an origin. So the Talmud offers two opinions to answer that question. According to one opinion, this is some sort of godly light. It says the Talmud, this is from the Talmud in Hadidah 12a, According to the first opinion, this is the light. The light of day one was the light through which Adam was able to have unrestrained vision from one end of the world to the other end of the world. There's some primordial, godly light that was present, that was almost like an extension or an emanation of God himself, so to speak, or God's light. And that was the light of day one that was drawn into this world. Rashi goes on to tell us that that light was hidden away for the future. That's the first opinion of the Talmud. The second opinion of the Talmud is that on day one, everything was created, including the celestial beings, the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. However, they weren't actualized, they weren't hung up, so to speak, in their place in the cosmos until day four. And that's an opinion that's talked about by many of the commentaries that really day one was the day of creation ex nihilo, of something from nothing, of yesh me'ayin. 
God created something out of out of nothing that existed prior. Whereas the rest of the days, it was what's called yesh miyesh, creating something out of something that's pre-existing, where you're forming, you're actualizing those creations into their fixed form. So that's that's day one. Day one, God creates the light and the darkness. On day two, God said, let there be the firmament in the midst of the waters, let it separate between the waters and waters. There's heavenly waters, there's lower waters. The Ramban already comments that this is all hard to understand. This is all Kabbalah. This is all esoteric stuff. It's mystifying. We can't understand it. And he says in his commentary, don't try to think that I'm going to give you the answers. I won't because it's not for you. It's not even for me. It's hard for us to understand what this actually means. What are these lower waters? What are these upper waters. There is an interesting teaching in Rashi in verse 6, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters. Uh, Says Rashi that the the waters were were there, but they weren't firm. They weren't weren't concretized. They, they, They weren't calcified. But what did God do? God screamed and they got terrified and they froze in place. It's a very strange idea that there's some sort of godly pronouncement that froze the water, that stiffened it, whatever that means. Uh, But one of the commentaries notes that the waters got scared of God and that froze them in place. And that maybe can be a model for us. We want to have things that we want to do and we want to have habits that we want to acquire. We want to have good deeds and good character that we want to concretize within ourselves. And sometimes you have them, but they're they're fleeting. You, you have them or you think you have them, and then maybe you could lose them. And here we see is that if you're fearful of heaven, if you have a serious relationship with God and you focus on that, that has the ability, just like God froze the water, God calcified the water with the fear of heaven, so to speak, we could do the same. If we inject fear of heaven into our life, that too will cement our good character that we are trying to to acquire. Now, it's interesting, the commentaries point out, Rashi talks about it, uh, that on day two, it doesn't say, like it says by all the other days, Kitov, uh, that God saw that what he did and it was good or was exceedingly good. And each one of these days, God says, the, the bottom line, after the day is over, the Almighty looks at it and says, well, this is good. Whereas on Monday, on day two, it doesn't have that same refrain. So Rashi explains, well, because the the water or the, the account of the creation and the formation and the setting of the water was not complete until day three, until Tuesday, where God uh, made the oceans and the seas and let the dry land be revealed. And because the it wasn't complete, you can't say, you can't label, you can't assign the label, it was good unless the work was complete. And because it wasn't complete till Tuesday, it wasn't announced on Monday, on day two, that behold, it is good. Now, it's interesting, the Talmud, in the book of Sacham, page 54a, asks the same question. Why, on Monday, on day two of creation, does it not label as it does with the other days, behold, it was good? The Talmud gives a different answer. The Talmud says that the reason why it does not announce that it was good on day two, on Monday, is because Gehenom, purgatory, hell was created on day two. And it struck me that, you know, Rashi has the Talmud, and the Talmud asks the same question, 
And the Talmud says that the reason why it wasn't assigned, day two wasn't assigned as the, a good day was because of hell, because of Gehenna, because of the creation of the purgatory, of this place where the sinners, so to speak, are cleansed from their sin. And Rashi seems to give a different answer, that the work was not complete until day three. So why would Rashi diverge from the Talmud's answer to the very same question? And maybe we could speculate that, in essence, Rashi's answer and the Talmud's answer is really one and the same. Rashi says that the reason why Monday wasn't labeled as it was good is because it wasn't finished until Tuesday. Well, in essence, that is exactly what the Jewish perspective of, of hell, of purgatory is, is when a job is not finished, something has to happen and it's not good. And that's what we call purgatory. So maybe Rashi is saying one half of the story, one half of the puzzle, and the Talmud is saying the other half of the puzzle, but both of them are referring to different elements of the same thing. The reason why it does not say it was good on Monday is because it wasn't complete. And that, in essence, is what the Talmud is saying when it says that Monday was the day for creation of Gehenim. Tuesday, we have the revelation of the land and the creation of trees and shrubbery and and, and, and uh, various vegetation. And on Wednesday, on day four, we have the creation of the celestial beings in the heaven, the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. And there's a very astonishing Rashi here uh, in uh, verse 15 and 16. You read the verse, the verse says, Let there be luminaries in the firmament and the heavens to separate between the day and the night, and they shall serve as signs and for festivals and for days and for years. As we know, a day and a month and a year, all those things, the calendar in essence, is regulated by the celestial beings. That's verse 14. Verse 15 says, And they shall serve as luminaries in the firmaments of the heaven to shine upon the earth. And Rashi in this verse, verse 15 says, oh, the purpose of the sun and the moon and the stars is really about the calendar. That's the first verse after all, verse 14, that we should have signs for festivals, for days. We should be able to have a regulated calendar to live our lives by, so to speak. And in addition, a secondary function of the firmament is that there should be light, there should be illumination. If you were to ask uh, me, or I would say most people, why do we have a sun? Most people would say, well, we have a sun because otherwise we wouldn't be able to live. We wouldn't have light. We wouldn't have heat, etc. And oh, maybe you may also think of the fact that there's a calendar value to the sun and the moon and the stars, etc. Here, it's the opposite. The primary function of the celestial beings is to regulate the calendar, and only the secondary function is for light, is for illumination. It's almost as if Rashi in his comment is telling us that maintaining time-bound mitzvos, according to the Torah, is the purpose of why these things, or the true purpose, the ultimate purpose, the primary purpose of why these things were created, and it's even more important for us, than light, which makes uh, living possible. And then verse uh, 16 talks about the two great luminaries. You have the sun, the great luminary, that is in charge of the day, and you have the moon, the more minor luminary, which is in charge of night. And in the Talmud, it brings an interesting backstory of these two luminaries. It says, initially, God created 
the sun and the moon, and they were the same size. But then the moon complained to God and said, well, you can't have me, the moon, and the sun, the same size. It's impossible to have two teams and they share one crown. So the man says, you know what? You're right. And he shrunk it and made it much smaller. As we know, the sun is roughly 400 times larger than the moon. So this is an interesting, if maybe unusual, esoteric, difficult to understand, puzzling statement. But there's like there's a dialogue here between God and the moon and God shrinking the moon. And I think there's actually a an important lesson here because the moon is complaining. And God says, oh, you want to complain? Okay, I'll make you smaller. And then there won't be two teams with one crown. The sun, your big sister, will be a much larger king. And therefore, it was shrunk. But if you actually look at the sun and the moon from the perspective of man, of, of, of earth, from our perspective, they look exactly the same size. So what actually happened was when the Almighty punished the moon by making it much smaller, he compensated by making it much closer to us. And it's positioned from our vantage point to look exactly the same size. And perhaps one of the lessons that we could deduce from this is that if someone needs to be punished, it's important that they're not embarrassed, that no one else needs to know. If you or me or anyone, we look at the sun and the moon, they look identical. Even though one of this hundreds of times larger, but it's positioned so many millions of miles away further that from our perspective, they look identical. Yes, uh, the moon was punished, but from our perspective, we don't need to know about that. Let it be punished, but we don't need to be privy to its shame. And on day five, God creates all kinds of living creatures, all kinds of birds, etc. And on day six, we have uh, various uh, larger animals and, of course, man. And in the verse, in verse 26, where we have the creation of man, it's a very troubling verse because it creates all kinds of theological problems. Uh, And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, Let us make man. It seems to imply that there's more than one one creator. It's us, us creating. So what's going on over here? So Rashi tells us, even though the angels did not help God in creating man, and this to create all kinds of proofs to to polytheism, to, to multiple ultimate powers, still the Almighty is teaching us a lesson. The lesson is that we should be humble just like God is, and just like God is consulting with his underlings, so to speak, with the angels about creating man, we too should consult with our underlings. And even though that may create room for the the polytheists or the idolaters or people who want to question the idea of one God, one ultimate power like we believe in, even though it's going to create questions, still God says, you know what, There's, there's an important lesson that I'm willing to take the risk, so to speak, of people making that mistake to teach an important lesson. And the lesson is a lesson of humility to ask advice uh, from smaller people, just like God asked advice from the angels. That said, in the very next verse, it says, Vayivra 
Elohim es ha'adam. And God, which in singular terms, God created, not they created, but God created man, which would remove the argument or defame the argument that it was multiple entities creating man. Now, the commentaries point out that it does not say it was good by the creation of man. It says it afterwards that the entire creation was good, but it doesn't say that by the creation of man it was good. And the answer to this is that man is not necessarily good. Man could be good. Man could be bad. And that's almost the essence of man, that we have the ability to veer in whichever direction we choose. It's up to us to decide if we are good. And therefore, God's not going to write our verdict. He won't say it's good. He won't say it's not good. It's up to us. Each one of us in our lives, we determine what is the status of our creation. Was it good? If we live up to what's demanded from us, then indeed it will be good. Otherwise, it's also within our ability for us to not be good. And then we'll have a different legacy. Now, if you look at chapter 2, you'll notice that man or the narrative of creation of man is repeated. And it's one of the questions that the Bible critics dwell upon is the the, the narrative of creation of, day, of chapter 1 of Genesis compared to the creation narrative of chapter 2 of Genesis. And if you look at Rashi, Rashi already hundreds and almost a thousand years ago answers those questions. But in, in verse 27 here in chapter 1, it tells us two explanations for the repetition of the creation of man narrative in chapter 1 versus chapter 2. Of course, in chapter 2, it talks about God taking one of man's ribs and building Eve out of it. And here we already see Adam and Eve in in chapter 1. So the first answer is that in chapter 1, man and wife, Adam and Eve, were created, but they were created like Siamese twins. They were merged together. That was the initial creation. In chapter 2, it's the separation of man and woman, of Adam and Eve, into two distinct entities. And this is one of the ideas that we see a lot with respect to relationships, that man and woman really are two halves of one whole. And that's the creation narrative of man in, in, in chapter one is the initial creation where they're bound together. And then chapter two is when they're separated. That's the first explanation. Uh, the second explanation is that chapter one is a very general overview of creation. And then in chapter two, it gets to more specific the details of how that was implemented. Now in verse 29 and 30, God instructs man uh, that they should have all the vegetables that's growing from the ground is for them to eat. And implied within that is that they could eat the vegetables, but they cannot eat meat. And the commentaries tell us, quoting from the Talmud, that until Noah arrived, until much later on, humanity was barred from eating meat. They could only eat, they had to be a vegetarian beforehand. And only later on were they allowed to eat meat. It is interesting, if you read Rashi quite critically, Rashi says that Adam and his wife were not allowed to kill any other creature to eat it. But the commentaries point out that implied in that specific 
word usage is that Adam and Eve are not allowed to kill an animal to eat it. But if the animal dies on its own, then they would be allowed to eat it. And finally, at the end of the creation narrative, we're told that God looked at everything that he did, and behold, it was exceedingly good, and thus concluded day six. And chapter two begins with, of course, day seven. God ceased to work on day seven, and therefore God blessed and God sanctified day seven, because that's the day that he rested, that he ceased to work from all that he created to do. Of course, this is a precursor of the Sabbath, of the Shabbos that we have, which is almost mimicking what God did. We work for six days, and on day seven, we cease to work. Now, in chapter 2, verse 5, we read about the problem that existed, that even though there were trees and vegetation, but they didn't yield fruit. They didn't sprout yet to the surface because there was no rain, because there was no man. So Rashi here tells us something very important. The reason why there was no vegetation was because there was no rain. And the reason why it's because there was no rain is because there was no man. And Rashi tells us the only way there can be rain is if there is man. Why? Because God is not going to give rain unless there's a human who will benefit and acknowledge and appreciate that goodness and pray for it. And therefore, because there was no man yet, this is going before Adam was created, there's no man yet, and therefore there's no one to benefit and to appreciate the rain, therefore the vegetation and the trees did not sprout. Once Adam came along and he realized that this is something that that the world needs, he prayed for it and the rain came and the trees and the various vegetation sprouted. In essence, what Rashi is telling us is that without prayer, this world gets severed from the spiritual world, from God, and the most basic functions which are needed to perpetuate the world, such as rain to grow vegetation, they cease happening. Prayer and appreciation of the goodness that God does for us for us are the forces that keep the world going which is a very powerful idea that we see here at the very beginning of of the history of of man. And again, in chapter 2, we get this recapitulation of the creation of of man. God is going to form man, earth from uh, from the ground, and blow into his nostrils. The soul of life, man is this hybrid of creation. It's half physical, half mundane, half from the earth, half very lowly. And on the other hand, God's blowing into man's nostrils the spirit of of, of life, the soul, which is, of course, uh, eternal. That's what man is. Man is this hybrid of creation where, on one hand, he's very physical in his body. On the other hand, he's very spiritual in his soul. Half animal, half earth, half angel, half spiritual. And the commentaries point out that if you look at the uh, the breakdown, the, 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 there's a certain symmetry of creation. On day one, you have a heaven and earth, which is spiritual and physical. On day two, you have, well, the firmament for the heaven, that's spiritual. Well, day, day three 
is once again back to earth, which is uh, the revelation of, of the dry land. Well, day four, you go back to heaven. You have the celestial beings. Well, day five, you go back to earth. And therefore, there's a certain uh, symmetry that's being maintained. You have this balance between the spiritual and the physical. And therefore, on day six, you have to maintain that balance. And therefore, man is the ultimate manifestation of that balance because half of him, half of man, half of mankind is physical from the earth and half of it is spiritual from the, so to speak, God blowing a soul into his nostrils. And uh, then we're told about where man is placed. He's placed in the uh, in the garden, in the which we call paradise, and the location of that place is is, is told. Uh, but at this point, man and woman are not yet separated, and that's going to create a problem because, like we read in verse eighteen, it's not good for man to be alone. He has to have a spouse to help him. And Adam is tasked with the responsibility of naming all the animals. He names all the animals, and he realizes that every single animal, every single species has a spouse, and he desires a spouse as well. And it's important uh, that Adam and Eve only become distinct entities, i.e. Adam is only given Eve as a spouse once he starts desiring it, once he realizes that all the other animals have it, and he doesn't, and then God says, oh, you want it? You want to have a spouse? And therefore, verse 21 read, God puts him to sleep, takes one of his ribs, and refashions it into a wife, and Adam is so delighted. He says, wow, this is a woman who came from bone for my bone, flesh for my flesh. This is going to be my wife. And the verse was on to tell us this is a good idea. Uh, people should get married. A man should leave his father and his mother, should cleave to his wife and become one flesh. There's a, an interesting anecdote in the Talmud uh, where uh, Rabbi Gamliel, who was the leader of the Jewish people, had a dialogue, a debate, if you will, with one of the Roman emperors. And the Roman emperor tells Rabbi Gamliel, he says, well, your God is a thief because God puts Adam to sleep and steals one of his ribs to fashion Eve out of it. So God's a thief. That's what he tells him. The daughter of the Caesar says to Rabbi Gamliel, you don't need to answer him. I'll answer my father. And she says to him, well, I need a military commander. I need, I need an army. Why, says her father, the Caesar, he says, well, thieves came in the middle of the night and they stole a pitcher made of silver and they replaced it with a pitcher made of gold. And I have to go find the culprits. I got to go mete out justice to those thieves. So the father responds to her, well, they took a silver pitcher and they replaced it with a gold pitcher. I hope these thieves come every night. It's great. We got an upgrade. So she says to him, ah, Well, what did Adam lose and what did Adam gain? He lost one of his ribs, but now he has a wife who's going to help him, aid him, and assist him to achieve whatever it is he wants in life. And therefore, it was a net positive. It wasn't, it was a thief, maybe, but this is the kind of thief that you want who takes away the silver and replaces it with something much more valuable. So then her father says, then the Caesar says, no, no, no. Okay, that wasn't really my question. My question was, why does God put Adam to sleep? And only then do the surgery to take out the rib to give him Eve. Do it. Don't do it surreptitiously. Do it straight up. Let, let him take the rib out and let him. And why, why is Adam put into a deep slumber that he can't 
partake or can't perceive in this happening. So again, the daughter responds, bring me a piece of raw meat. They take this hunk of, of, of raw meat and it's all disgusting and it's all covered with all kinds of, it's nasty. And she starts butchering it all up for him. And then, then she presents him a steak. And he says to him, I'm nauseated by it. I don't want to touch this. It's disgusting. I saw the whole process where this meat was initially was dripping in blood and it's covered in guts. And I had you, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to eat it, even though it may, it may look very appetizing now. Because I was in the kitchen, because I was in the butcher house, seeing it being processed, I don't want any part of it. So she says to him, oh, that's exactly the same reason why Adam was put to sleep. He was just shown the, shown the, the finished product. Had he been privy to this whole gory surgery, he sees his ribs being taken out and his blood and all kinds of disgusting things, then he too would be disgusted with Eve. So again, we see that the Almighty is, is, is going to do things in a way that are going to be more pleasant and more palatable uh, for Adam and by extension uh, for us. Now it's interesting here we get this piece of advice that a man should leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and become one flesh. It's almost as if there's something about Adam and Eve and their marriage that we should model our marriages and our relationships after. Now, a quick spoiler alert, chapter three, the marriage is going to seem to go south or sideways at a minimum. And it's kind of odd that Adam and Eve are presented as you know, they're put on the pedestal. This is what a marriage should look like. And therefore, the Torah, the narrator of the Torah, so to speak, in verse 24, tells us, we too should leave a father and mother and cleave to our wife and become one flesh. And in fact, in a Jewish wedding service, there's something called the Sheva Brachos, the seven blessings, the seven blessings that we say under the chuppah, under the wedding canopy, and for the duration of the days of celebration. And one of those blessings is Sameach Tesamach gladden the bride and the groom like you did with Adam and Eve. Again, we're told that our marriages should be modeled after the relationship of Adam and Eve. So there's many different answers uh, to this question. Uh, but one of the answers of what was so special about Adam and Eve's relationship that we should model our relationships after is the fact that Adam, all he had was Eve. And Eve... All she had was Adam. And what we're telling a bride and a groom under the wedding canopy and for the duration of the seven days of celebration is that you should try to model yourself after Adam and Eve because yes, they had their disagreements and yes, they had their marital discord that we'll read about in chapter three. But you know what? They had each other and none of them were looking at any other people, any other potential relationships because after all, there was no one else. I remember many years ago, I heard a married man opining, quote, even after you submit your, your order in a restaurant, you could still look at the menu. I.e., even though he was married, you could still ogle at other women. And I was thinking that's, that, that's really not taking the lesson of Adam and Eve to heart. Adam had Eve and no one else, and didn't look at anyone else, and she at him, and didn't look at anyone else either, and that's the appropriate relationship. Once you make your order, that's it. You don't look at the menu, and I kind of wonder sometimes uh, what happened to him 
to that individual and his marriage uh, with that attitude. It doesn't seem like it's very likely to succeed for very long. And the final verse of chapter 2, we're told that Adam and Eve were naked, but they were unashamed of it. And Rashi tells us that they didn't have a Yetzer Hara, they didn't have an evil inclination, until after the sin, the original sin of chapter 3 of Genesis, and therefore they had no shame. What this is telling us is that shame stems from the potential of lustful sin. And prior to the sin of chapter 3, there was no lust because there was no internal Yetzer Hara, there was no internal evil inclination, and therefore they were as embarrassed of their nakedness as we are of our hands. Just like you're not embarrassed of your hands, they were not embarrassed of their nakedness. In chapter 3, we, re- we meet the serpent, the snake, and it's a cunning animal, it's the most cunning, and he gets involved and he tries to create the problem. And what's the problem? The problem is that God tells Adam and Eve, you're in this beautiful garden, everything there is for you to enjoy, with the exception of this one tree that's in the middle of the garden, the Eitz Hadas, the tree of knowledge of good and bad. You can't eat it. On the day they eat it, you will surely die. And the snake tells uh, the woman, which is Eve, tells her, well, what did the Almighty say with respect to eating from the trees, from the fruits of the garden? And he says, well, we can eat whatever we want, but we can't eat from the tree which is in the center of the garden from the tree of knowledge, because God said, don't eat it and don't touch it. And Rashi right away picks up on this, that even though God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree, she said, don't eat, that we shouldn't, as if God told us, we shouldn't eat and we shouldn't touch from the tree in the middle of the garden. Now, this is interesting because there is a principle that we read about later on in the Torah which is that we should make a restrictive fence around prohibitions. The most common example, one of the laws of Shabbat is that you may not write on Shabbat, and the fence around that restriction is don't handle writing implement, don't play with a pen, because if you play with a pen, you may come to write on Shabbat. Just like you have a, if you have a nuclear reactor, you put a fence around it, because you don't want people coming even close to it because it's so dangerous. Similarly, you don't want to eat from the tree. You don't touch it because you add an extra layer of separation between you and the tree. Says Rashi, this blunder of making this added restriction, that is what caused them eventually to capitulate and sin and eat from the tree. Now, the obvious question is, well, we know that you're supposed to make these kinds of restrictive fences around prohibitions. What did, what did she do so wrong? And the answer is, is that she conflated the fence and the commandment itself. She said that God said we shouldn't eat from the tree nor touch it. What she should have said is that God said, don't eat from the tree. And we said, and we added a restriction not to touch it because she equated the restriction itself that God gave and the protective fence that Adam and Eve enacted to prevent 
from eating from the tree. She made those two on the same pedestal, the same on the same level. She equated the two. That's why things went wrong. And Rashi explains that the serpent shoved her into the tree. And she said, hey, see, you touch the tree, no problem. Obviously, God is making up this story. You said, he, God says, you can't touch the tree. They touch the tree, you'll die. It's not true. Look, you just touched the tree and you didn't die. And then the serpent tells her, well, the real reason why God doesn't want you to eat from the tree of good, of knowledge of good and bad is because then you become like God. You'll be knowing good and bad. Therefore, he doesn't want you to eat it because then he's going to lose his, his monopoly on being God. You'll become a God like him. And indeed, she capitulates, she eats from the tree, she gives it to her husband, and right away, they, their eyes are opened, and they realize that they're naked, and they try to cover themselves up with some foliage. Now, it's interesting, the Talmud points out that the serpent told her the truth, that you will become like God, knowing good and bad, because what indeed happened Later on in chapter 3, we read that after they ate from the tree, they did become knowing good and bad. Both good and bad are now internal motivators. And they became like God because they have now more choices, more, more free will. And of course, this, this, whole, this whole chapter, this whole story is one of the most difficult things to understand. It's like the founding episode of, the, of, of humanity. God gives this commandment, Adam and Eve aren't up for the test. And then all kinds of terrible things happen as, as, as a consequence. But just quite briefly, of course, there's mountains of, of Jewish literature on this subject. As a general understanding of what's going on here is that Adam and Eve, humanity at that point, they're in, in, created in the image of God. They have godly capacities to make choices. Now, the choices were of a different level than they are today. Like we explained earlier, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, was not internal. It wasn't something that they knew from within. It was external. It was manifested by the serpent that was outside of them, and that created the test, the challenge to eat, to not eat. That's the choice, the free will that they have. After they eat from the tree, of knowledge, good and bad, both good and bad become internal, i.e. the evil inclination is now subsumed within them and they're internally conflicted to do good and do bad. Their, their soul says do good, their evil inclination that also operates from within them is also telling them do bad. And therefore, the conflict, so to speak, that now we have to grapple with is actually more fierce because now we have to not only fend off an external threats, we have to almost evict internal threats. There's internal enemies, so to speak. There's the evil connection that's operating within us telling us to do bad. And the commentaries point out that Adam and Eve knew what they were getting themselves into. They knew that their decision would have drastic consequences, but they did it willfully. It was a calculated decision to embrace this world, the world that we live in today, the world where we have a much more heightened degree of free will because both good and bad are operating within us. It's a mixture. And therefore, 
what Adam and Eve chose to do was to imbibe on the poison, so to speak, to heighten the degree of meaning of life by making it even more difficult for us to navigate life because now we have a more difficult challenge and therefore our life and our successes and our triumphs are much greater because we overcame greater obstacles. Of course, there's the flip side to it. It's a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's great. We have this more godly quality of making a higher degree of choices, but of course, it could be bad if we make the wrong choices. But the bottom line is, is that Adam and Eve made a very thought-out, cogent, calculated decision to heighten, to amplify the degree of meaning that we have in our lives by incorporating the evil inclination within them, and now their choices are much more intense to choose good or bad. Bad is much more seductive because it is internally desirous, whereas previously it was not. And right away, they notice they're naked, i.e., that's, again, the first manifestation of the evil within them. Now there is a possibility of lust, and therefore there is shame, And right away, God comes into the garden, and they start hiding, and God calls out to them, where are you? I was scared. I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? And right away, uh, the recriminations begin. Adam says, well, Eve gave it to me. Eve says, well, the serpent gave gave it to me, and the punishments are meted out to everyone, to all three of the conspirators, the snake, the serpent. Adam and Eve. And it's interesting. Adam earlier, he was the only one who didn't have a spouse. And he finally got a spouse. And he was so excited. This time it's flesh for my flesh, bone for my bone. I'm going to call her. Um, She's my wife. She came for me. This is great. And right away, as soon as things get problematic, as soon as he is accused of a crime, he throws her under the bus. Well, she's the one who gave it to me. And she is responsible. I am free of any guilt. And the commentaries point out, if you actually study these episodes with careful lenses, you'll notice that this is exactly what the Eight Sahara does. It causes us to have a lack of appreciation of the goodness of others and an inability to see our own guilt. Adam was guilty and Eve, in aggregate, was very beneficial for him. But as soon as he's influenced by this bad from within, well, no longer is he going to appreciate the goodness that Eve is for him, and no longer is he willing or is he likely to view himself in a negative light, and therefore he's innocent, in his mind at least, he's innocent, and everyone else is guilty, Eve is guilty, and oh, she's responsible. So what happens? There's punishments meted out. The snake is told that he, he first of all, is going to slither on his, on his belly. He's going to lose his legs. He had legs prior and he lost them. He's going to have to eat from the dust of the earth. There's going to be enmity between him and the children of mankind, of humanity. And the commentaries point out that this punishment of having to eat dust, it sounds almost like a blessing. Well, dust is quite plentiful on our planet. Uh, And the answer is, is that this indeed is a curse because yes, you may have plentiful food, but you're going to not have any connection with God. And 
Yes, for us, sometimes finding food is a struggle, but that struggle makes our life sometimes uh, more meaningful. Eve is told three things. She's going to have pain in child rearing, pain of gestation, and pain of childbirth. And Adam is told that he's going to have a hard time making a living. The ground is going to be full of weeds and thorns and thistles and things like that. He's going to have to sweat very hard until he's able to put food on the table. And it's interesting, the commentaries explain here that the punishment is going to fit the crime. The crime of Adam and Eve was the fact that they embraced evil within them. They chose to absorb the poison of the serpent, of the evil inclination, and to accept that within themselves. And while that may have been calculated, they may have been well thought out, this plan, but now there's something within them that is antithetical to God. And therefore, because they are willing to absorb something which is antithetical to God, God says, oh, you don't want to have this exclusive relationship where you really recognize that everything is from me. and every- You want to have this intermediary between you and me. You want to have this false God of the evil inclination. If you want that, well, I'll give you that. Previously, Eve would have a child and it would happen that, like we're told, the day, the same day that she conceived, she gave birth and it was all painless and effortless almost. Well, in that kind of world, you can't reject God. It's impossible to see anything but godly intervention and godly oversight. Now that there's painful gestation and painful birth, well, what does she think? It's almost as if this whole process clouds humanity's ability to see God's intervention. The fact that the woman has to go through all these pains and all these difficulties until she produces a child, even though the input and the output is something which is obviously miraculous. The fact that we could produce children that have their own souls and their own consciousness and their own lives and everything, that's of course a miracle, but now that's a miracle that's more harder to perceive because of all the difficulties that has to go into the process of reaching that final child. Similarly, with Adam, previously, with very little work, you produce fruits. Well, in that kind of world, it's impossible to reject God. There is no like natural process. It's all miracles. Well, now the man has to plow and he has to plant and he has to wait and he has to get the rain. He has got the harvest and weed out all those contaminants. All those steps make him think that this miracle of dropping a seed into the ground and having it sprout forth as fruit, that miracle is not a miracle. That's all my hard work, all my labor, all the sweat of my brow brought me this final product, this Bread on the table, that's my handiwork. That's not God's handiwork. That's the result. You asked for an alternative to God. You asked for having the evil inclination, having the good and the bad operating within you. You got that. But what does that look like? That looks like a world where you have to do much of the heavy lifting because that is the conditions in which rejecting God is feasible. And uh, the chapter ends... Uh, where God makes Adam and Eve leather garments and clothes them, and then they are banished from paradise, and there is a swinging, flaming sword placed upon the door they can't get back in. 
And there's an interesting teaching in the Talmud, in the book of Sota, on page 14a. The Talmud says that the Torah begins and ends with episodes of godly kindness. The first episode and the last episode of the Torah are both God doing kindness. Well, what's the first episode of the Torah? So it points to chapter 3, verse 21. God made for Adam and Eve leather garments and he clothed them. And uh, the question could be asked, well, is this really the beginning of the Torah? This is the end of chapter 3. There's all kinds of other things that are earlier episodes of the Torah. Why does the Talmud say that the Torah begins, the very first episode of the Torah, is godly kindness? No, the Torah begins much earlier. That question could be asked. And perhaps the answer is, is that functionally the Torah begins once Adam and Eve have sinned. The original sin of Adam and Eve of eating from the from the forbidden fruit created the conditions that we can have Torah. Why do we have Torah? What is the object? Why did God give us Torah? It's to thwart the consequences of the sin. We have good and evil operating simultaneously within us. Well, how do we differentiate between the good and the evil? How do we know? to embrace the good and reject the evil? How do we thwart, negate, neutralize this poison that's operating within us? That's why we have Torah. Adam is banished from the Garden of Eden and he's locked out. That's, of course, a result of the sin. When we have Torah, Torah is the tools to undo the consequences of the sin, to remove the evil from within within us and to allow us to regain entry into paradise. A very powerful idea. Chapter 4, we meet uh, Cain and Abel, the children of Adam and Eve. Uh, One of them becomes a farmer, one of them becomes a shepherd, and they both bring sacrifices and offerings to God. Uh, Cain brings from the more uh, poorer quality fruits and Abel brings from the more choicest fruit. And of course, God accepts the offering of Abel but rejects the offering of Cain. Cain gets envy, envious. He gets uh, upset. He gets depressed. God says to him, listen, you know, you, if you improve what you do, I'll embrace it. But if you don't, well, then what, what do you expect? Cain is not comforted and he plots and he eventually kills his brother. God says to him, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? And Cain is punished. So it's interesting. Cain, the reason why this whole thing was set into motion is because he brought an offering to God and God rejected it. Well, why did God reject it? Because it was of a lower quality. It seems like the lesson here is that doing mitzvot, doing Torah, fulfilling the will of God, trying to develop a relationship with God is not about just doing the perfunctory acts of offering something for God. The reason why his offering was rejected is because he gave from the poorer fruits. And perhaps the lesson for us is that we should strive when we are offering to God, when we're doing stuff for God, so to speak, we should not follow the example of Cain. Instead, we should do it in the best and the choices of fashion. And then it's likely to be accepted. And Abel, well, he copies him and it's accepted because he gives of a more choicer 
uh, higher quality offering. And it's interesting, right afterwards, Cain is despondent, he's depressed, he is forlorn. And what does God do? God gives him empathy. He says, well, why are you upset? Why are, why are you down? Why has your countenance fallen? It's interesting, like this, this little episode here of chapter 4, verse 6, God is coming to Cain and giving him empathy. He's showing concern for him. The Rambam Maimonides tells us that whenever we're told or shown God's behavior, it's because it's something that we ought to try to emulate. There's a mitzvah, there's a commandment for us to try to emulate, to walk in God's ways. And here we see a nice example of it. Cain is down, he's depressed, he's despondent. What does God do? Right away he says, why are you sad? How can I make it better? And he gives him the guidance to do that. Uh, But Cain is not comforted and he goes and commits fratricide by killing his brother. Now, there's an interesting verse here. In verse 10, Rashi points out that God tells Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's bloods cry out to me from the ground. You read it in Hebrew. It doesn't say the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me. It's the voice of your brother's bloods, plural. Says Rashi, what does this mean? It means that even though Cain only killed one person, in effect, he killed not only Abel, his brother, but had Abel survived, he might have had children, and they would have had children, and they would have grandchildren, grandchildren, etc. So did Cain kill one person? Did he kill, I don't know, a hundred billion people? And here we're told that the bloods of his descendants are also included in the original misdeed of Cain. And the takeaway here is, is that the Almighty views every action, both good and bad, not just in the limited sense what happened here, Cain killed Abel, but what would have happened, what were all the possible repercussions and ramifications of that act. And the act is that Cain didn't kill one person, he killed the bloods of Abel and Abel's children and gradual and great-grandchildren and so on. All that was part of the original crime, which is, of course, very terrifying uh, for us on the negative side that when we do things against the will of God, God views it not just in the limited sense, in, in more rigid, this is the act and that's it. It's contained. It's not a contained act. Every act is viewed with all the millions of repercussions, ramifications, and permutations of, of that act. And that's on the negative side. It's also on the positive side. I, I heard a story about uh, an episode that happened in the in the Warsaw ghetto. There was a woman, a Jewish woman, who was in the ghetto. Uh, she was pregnant, and she wanted to visit her physician. So she snuck out of the Warsaw ghetto, and she went to visit her Polish non-Jewish physician. And then after the visit, she was heading back home to the ghetto, and the, the doctor said to her, Are you crazy? You're going back into the ghetto? Come stay here with me. She said to to, to the physician, well, I have a family. I can't just abandon my family. So the doctor said to her, he says, okay, bring your family here. We'll see what we could do to try to hide them. So the woman sneaks back into the ghetto and comes back to this Polish doctor with 13 of her immediate family members. And indeed, from 1941... Three and a half years, this Polish physician guarded, safeguarded, and hid these 13 Jewish souls, and they all survived, quite improbably. And then in 19, 
90s, there was a wedding. One of the grandchildren of the one of those people who survived, one of those grandchildren was getting married. And this Polish doctor, she was already advanced uh, in her 80s or 90s, they, they found her. And they flew her into New York to participate in the wedding. And they said by this wedding, there were over 200 descendants of people that she, that this non-Jewish woman had hid in her attic during the duration of the war. And I think this is almost like the flip side. Yes, this woman saved 13 souls, which is, of course, incredible. But not only that, all those children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, I'm sure today there's probably not 200, maybe there's 400 descendants. All those people are all in the merit of the initial act of kindness and gallantry of that brave woman. Pretty remarkable how it goes both ways. So Cain is reprimanded by God. God says to him, you, you know, you, you committed murder. And Cain tries to repent. God says, okay, I'll, I'll let you repent. You're, you're going to survive for seven generations before you're killed. He puts, places a marker on his head that he shouldn't be attacked by the animals. And uh, Cain doesn't have such a great life. Afterwards, he is uh, an itinerant. He constantly has to resettle in different places. Uh, he has children and grandchildren. Eventually, his descendant is Lemech, and this Lemech character eventually kills his great-great-grandfather uh, by mistake. And Rashi explains this Lemech individual was blind, and he was hunting with the son, and he sees uh, a figure. He thought it's an animal. He shoots him with the bow. Turns out it's his great-great-grandpappy, uh, Cain. And then things go bad because he was so sad. He started shaking his hands together, and then he crushed the skull of his son as well. It's a really bad day uh, for for Lemach and his wives uh, turn on him as as well. Uh, then we go back to, to Adam. Adam uh, gets, uh, he has more children and eventually he's going to die at the age of 930. And this is a theme we see in chapter 5. We go through the 10 generations from Adam until Noah and we're not told very much, many details about uh, these individuals, but we're told their, their, their lifespan and the numbers are, are astoundingly large. You know, Adam lived to 930, 900, 969, Mesushelach. And uh, the shortest one is, is Chano. He only lasts to 365. Of course, it's a question for us. You know, today, people, thank God, have our, our lifespan is expanding. It's getting larger. People living to 70, 80, it's quite normal. 90, 100, even more than that is becoming uh, less rare than in previous days. But no one lives till 200 or much less 900. So the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, in one of his books, he says that the goal of life after the sin of, of Adam is to fix and to eradicate the evil within us. For us, for you know, post-Abraham, post-Sinai, we have Torah. And the objective of Torah is to enable us, it's a tool to cleanse us of the evil that we have within us. During the times of Adam to Noah and up to the times of Abraham, there was no Torah. And therefore, they had to come up with other ways to achieve the same end of trying to remove the evil from, from within them. And therefore, because they didn't have the magic bullet, the elixir, 
of Torah to remove the evil from within them, they were given a much longer lifespan because they had to go the long route to achieve the same goal. Once we have Torah, it's much easier for us to remove the evil from within us, and therefore we have shorter lifespans. And you actually, if you read throughout Genesis, once Abraham comes around, he's going to discover much of Torah and certainly the Torah ideals, and right away the lifespans are drastically shortened to being close to the, t- the lifespans that we are accustomed to. Now, there's an interesting note here. While it lists all the generations from Adam to Noah, there's one in particular uh, that is of note, and that's Hanoch, who is uh, from Adam to Seth to Enosh to Canaan to Mahalel to, J- to Yerah to Jared to Enoch, Mesushela, Lemach, and Noah, 10 generations, we meet also Hanoch. And Hanoch, he lives a comparatively shorter life, 365. And Rashi says something very surprising. Rashi says that the reason why he died young or relatively young is because he was righteous. And God was worried that if he lives a long time, he may regress and he may become less righteous. And therefore, God killed him as an act of mercy, which is a very important teaching here in Rashi, if we just read this, and we would say, well, why Why is Hanoch, who's righteous, the verse says, is walking with God, why is he dying young? And then Rashi tells us, no, 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 it's, it's actually the opposite. It's not a punishment. It's not an indictment of Hanoch. In fact, it's to his benefit to die young because that will ensure that he'll die righteous. And this, again, shows us that we have no idea what kind of godly calculations are going on. And we see this again a little bit later on in chapter, in the last verse of chapter 5. It tells us that Noah was 500 years old when he had his children. And Rashi points out that previously, the people were 100 maybe or so when they had children. Why did it take Noah so long to become a father? And the answer is that God said, well, if Noah would have children earlier and they were to be wicked, well, then they'll die in the flood, which is upcoming uh, quite soon. And if their children are righteous, if, if Noah has children which are righteous and he starts having children at the age of 100, and when he's 600, the flood happens, well, it's possible he had 30, 40, 50, 100 children by that time. And then when Noah has to build the ark, he might have to build five arks or 10 arks to have refuge for all his children. And therefore, God said, okay, I'm, I'm going to give him infertility. He's not going to become fertile until the age of 500. That way, he'll have very few children by the time that the flood happens. So again, we see the same kind of thing. We have the two righteous people of this whole narrative. Hanoch, the righteous, he dies young. Noah, who is the righteous one as well, and he's so old before he has his first child. He's infertile. And in both instances, Rashi tells us that this is God making a calculation that is actually to the benefit of the righteous people of Hanoch and Noah, even though for us, it may not seem like it's very beneficial for them. And in chapter 6, we see the degradation of society. Uh, There's masses of people, and they start to behave in a very immoral fashion. Uh, Women were kidnapped and raped, like Rashi tells us. There was uh, strong men uh, who would bully people, who would 
use their power and their strength to submit and, and, and subjugate uh, the rest of society. And idolatry started to become more popular. There was all kinds of sexual misdeeds that became uh, the norm. And even the animals were starting to behave in a corrupt and immoral fashion. And God says, I'm going to allow them, uh, I'm going to tolerate them for another 120 years. But if they don't rectify and mend their ways, I'm going to destroy them. And the Parsha ends. Noah found favor in the, in the eyes of God. Noah was the outlier. Noah was the one person in a sea of immorality, in a sea of sin, in a world that had begun to deteriorate spiritually. Noah was the one person who found favor in the eyes of God. And of course, the very next partial we'll do next week, please God, is the Parsha Parsha Noah, the story of Noah and the ark and the flood and the fact that God is, so to speak, starting anew. This humanity has become so corrupt, so beyond repair, we're going to have to clean house and start from scratch.